Going Linux, episode 352, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you're new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want, you can send us feedback at our email address at goinglinks at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. Hello, Bill. Hello, Larry. How things been going for you this uh, fine week? Going well. Just uh, can't believe that half the year's already gone. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It's, <laughs> wow. Soon uh, daylight savings time stops and we go back where it's dark at 5 o'clock. I don't know if I'm going to like that too much, but... Yeah, well, uh, something we have to put up with here in this part of the world, at least, uh, for, um, you know, part of the year. Yeah. We deal with it, right? Yeah, right. How's the uh, weather out there? It's getting cooler up here at night. So, you know, usually it's it's uh, hot. Now it's like 56 degrees this morning. It's, you know, you can tell that fall's on the way. Yeah, things have started started to cool off here in Southern California a little bit, too. Uh, we, we're not getting to 56, uh, but things are a little cooler in the morning. Things are a little cooler during the day. Uh, that'll last, you know, a couple more weeks, and then it'll be back to hot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And yeah. now that uh, this this week in weather, I think we should probably move on with the show. <laughs> yes, that's uh, yeah. That tells you how much news we've had. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, basically, we work and we record podcasts. So let's go on. Yeah. Okay. So we got a voicemail from Lester, who's the Amish trucker. And he gets us started with the voicemail, and he thought we were a bit heavy on the criticism and suggests we do a more unbiased review of Pingai or any distribution we review. Let's first listen to his uh, voicemail, and then we'll come back with some comments. All right. Okay. Hey, this is Lester, a.k.a. the Amish Trucker. I have listened to this show for years now, and uh, I switched totally to Linux in about 2007, and I have always enjoyed this show. Uh, on today's show that I just listened to, where you have the pin guy re uh, review, uh, I thought it was just a little bit heavy on um, criticizing everything that's wrong with pin guy. Uh, and I'm sure it's not the the, the um, exact uh, distribution you guys like, but uh, I'm sure that uh, it'll be good for some people. My suggestion is to perhaps just give a more unbiased review and um, leave it at that. Otherwise, it's a good show, and I love you guys. Um, you know, Bill, 
I I understand what Lester is saying that our episode came across probably a little bit heavier on criticism than most of our other reviews of other distributions. I do recall that you felt like you were trying to be as gentle as possible. So <laughs> what what do you think? I can understand what Lester, uh, you know, his, uh, maybe his, he thought it was kind of heavy handed and it wasn't meant to be, it was meant to be as unbiased, but you know, you can't be a hundred percent unbiased be- because if, you know, even our, our two ones that we like, uh, we've, uh, said, Hey, this needs to change or we didn't like something about, about mm-hmm. it. The, um, if he listens to it again, he'll see that, that I didn't even give it a review or, uh, a star review, uh, because it had, I thought it, it has a lot of potential, and I said so as much in the interview. Uh, I, I thank him for his his uh, opinion, and uh, I don't think I was that heavy-handed with it. I mean, yeah, there was some things that uh, maybe would come across as a little um, maybe heavy-handed but or a little harsh, but it was only f- the hope that it would get better. And um, so the... Uh, the developer, you know, when I sent him that email saying that we were going, we were going to review, he said the only way he can improve on is when we tell him what we don't like. Right. Well, you know what? We tried to be as honest as we could. Yes. And, you know, every review is just a reflection of the personal opinion of the person giving the review. So we didn't like it as much as we like the other ones that we recommend. And that's our personal opinion. So, yeah. and Lester, my, thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Lester. And like I said, um, I will uh, work to try to maybe not be as heavy-handed. But if we don't like something, we're just going to say it. I don't want. I don't want to yeah. give it a glowing review, and then say someone gets on and says this thing is horrible. He, why didn't you tell me about this stuff? And, and you know, for everything bad that we didn't like, we did like certain things. You know, so. Um, if there are changes, uh, Lester, in it, uh, and, or he, uh, the developers says, hey, he has some points and change some things around, I'll look at it. And if it's great, I'll say it's great. But until that time, we'll just say I stand by my review. And uh, and so let's just move on. Like I said, I uh, thanks again, Lester, for letting us know. And uh, we always welcome everybody's feedback. Right. Thank you. All right, our next email is from Kogoman, who provided comments about Mint 19. Hi, guys, keep up the good work. I just wanted to point out a few things about my experience with Mint 19. First, TimeShift is not a backup software in the true sense. TimeShift keeps copies of older system files, usually on the same hard drive as the operating system. If the hard drive dies, so does TimeShift backups. TimeShift is there to get back to a usable system if an update breaks functionality. 
Mint Backup can back up your home folder and can keep a list of the software you've added, allowing you to restore the added software on a new account easily. The most important thing about a real backup is the 3 one rule as presented by many sites. This one came up first, uh, and he provides a link to a website that talks about the 3 one backup rule and summarizes it as... Uh, in this way he says three backup copies of anything you want to keep two different storage media and one off-site storage site wisdom is not to allow the off-site storage to reside close by where the same natural disaster would get both for example data kept in florida off-site backup in florida one hurricane gets both original and backup that being said i don't trust others with my data so i currently don't have the number one <laughs> okay my complaint about time shift is that the rsync job runs with elevated privileges if it's doing its backup thing in the background it should let me have most of the system resources instead of bringing the system to a crawl i installed it on a flash drive i wouldn't enable time shift on anything smaller than about 100 gigabytes 16 gig drive didn't like it hmm okay i think uh time shift is something that you mentioned in that mint 19 review yeah did they switch from the Mint backup to TimeShift? I don't think they did, did they? I know that um, the idea behind TimeShift was in case a uh, update broke it, uh, yeah, you could go back to the TimeShift uh, of the current of the old working systems and bring it back, and because that, that's why it's integrated into the upgrade system. And I know uh, from what I don't know, I I, I believe I understand that. It doesn't. It doesn't back up your home directory. It it just back. It just will back up uh, the like. Um, if I'm not wrong, settings and system settings. So in case something does break. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. So. But, so that's why he's saying it's not a true backup. Yeah, that's why I say okay. so. Um, he makes a, several good points, but he's right that and in time shift it does say you shouldn't you can but you shouldn't store uh your time shift um, backups to to the same disk and my my system's not set up like that uh my system uh has a uh 120 gigabyte uh solid state where the operating system resides and then I have a spinning drive uh, that stores the programs and stuff. So I store all that on the spinning drive. And, and uh, so if I did need to back up system files, it, it would it would go to the flash drive. So a lot of the new a lot of the new systems are hybrid systems where they use a solid state for the OS and then a big spinning drive for all the programs and storage. Yep. So, so that way you get them on two separate yeah, they're, drives. Yeah, they're on yeah. two separate drives. And uh, as far as um, – I've never tried it, but I'm assuming that you could use uh, R-Sync or uh, Mint Backup. Uh, is there a way to set um, – because I've never done that. You, you might have set uh, Mint Backup to maybe like 
save your home photo to home photos to uh, like a online uh, like Google Drive or Dropbox or something. I believe there is. I haven't used Mint Backup in a while, and it is. I think it's the one that's based on Simple Backup, and they've added some really nice features of it. Uh-huh. Uh, and the one that's on Ubuntu Mate is based on RSync, and I know that it allows you to subscribe to online backup storage and to store it online as well. I think Mint Backup does as well. I'd have to look at it to be sure, but that's that's one way you can do it. Uh, my backups, I keep the locally um, on a separate drive and in fact I use uh, because I'm using Ubuntu Mate I use the Ubuntu Mate backup that's built in which automatically encrypts the backup and backs up the entire hard drive so the system files as well as the data files Mm -hmm. and the the disadvantage that i see in that is that the backup is encrypted and in order to get one file or a folder with files in it which is usually what i want from my backup i would have to go in and unencrypt and and then then back you know extract out the things that i wanted from that backup so what i do is i let the the ubuntu mate backup with the encryption run on a regular basis just to have that backup in case I need it, have never needed it, knock on wood. And I also run rsync, just an rsync script that does the uh, backup of the uh, data files, which, uh, and, and store them again on a separate drive, a network drive or on a separate uh, spare hard drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, unencrypted because when I need those files, it's the data files that I need. And it's the, you know, it's the old copy of something that I have deleted from my, uh, from my hard drive to make some space or because I felt like I wasn't going to need it for a long time. And then (laughs) go back and discover, Oh, wait, I need that. So I go back to one of my multiple backups on multiple different hard drives and I'm not worried about them being unencrypted because if somebody could figure out which of the many spare hard drives <laughs> my backup is on, uh, you know, they, they're welcome to it. Um, and I don't have anything proprietary on those backups anyway. So, you know, I, unless somebody wants the raw recordings of the going Linux podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know, I, I'd use a, a little bit. Um, I do things a little different. I don't really... I'll um, worry about uh, backing up my whole hard drive because it's just uh, the only thing I really want to save is like pictures, uh, videos, and uh, you know audio, music, or, or recordings or whatever, and sure. uh, programs that might be hard to find. I will store those online, usually in Dropbox or uh, my main go-to is the Google Drive. Cause uh, I'm kind of testing out uh, um, some different solutions, online solutions, and so I've got them backed up off-site. And so I, I, I just don't, you know, if I lose a background, uh, you know, image, oh well. Uh, but uh, if someone wants to hack into my Google Drive, all they're going to find is pictures of my dogs. Um, and maybe some, uh, 
the you know some music and like man he has some weird tastes but <laughs> but you know and so there were yeah. all recordings of um the show so i mean there's uh, there's nothing there so unfortunately uh <laughs> it'd be a total waste of their time but hey uh so i i just kind of do uh, i the files can you know pictures and stuff can't be replaced but you know you can always reinstall the operating system so i i, I just keep the stuff that i can't easily replace and you know when it's time to blow away anything i just you know it's pretty simple, and the online storage. There's, I mean, I got like one terabyte of storage. I mean, I don't have that much stuff. So yeah, right, right, exactly. So. Yeah, and I don't need that much space either. And so my Dropbox folder is just the the default, and then I've gone through some promotions to get some additional Dropbox space, but. So I've got enough to handle what I put on there, and I use that as storage as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only thing that I put on there are the things that you and I need to share for the podcast, because that's how we do that. And uh, anything else that I want on there in uh, online storage in a place that I can get from multiple computers or in a place that I can get to from a computer that is someone else's. Uh, and I want to log in uh, and get a file um, or I want to get a file that I have shared or, you know, whatever. If, if I need, need the file without physical access to my computer or a hard drive, that's where I'll put it. It's on Dropbox. Um, since we mentioned Dropbox a couple of times, we should probably mention that there have been some changes to how Dropbox is supporting Linux and other operating systems. I was systems. just going to say that. that. You were going to say that? Okay. Yeah. Um, so why don't you go ahead and comment on it? And so then we'll... Dropbox uh, has decided um, in the very near future that if you're not using uh, the file system ext4, you can't use it. Uh, right. And so – You can't – well, you can't use their – uh, Linux client. Yeah. Oh, is that for is that automatic it? backups? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I yeah I guess you could you could use the web interface, but uh, a lot right. a lot of us, oh myself, I have where you know certain things I automatically sync using a Dropbox client, and so me too. Uh, I play with different file systems, and that was one of the things that caught my attention because uh, for a while I was running the XFS to see how it does. And so when I saw that, when I uh, reinstalled uh, Mint, I just said, well, I'll just go with the XT4. So, yeah, if you're running something different, you might – the workaround, I guess, would be to use the web interface. But, you know, that kind of takes away the, some of the convenience of Dropbox. So, Right, exactly. And to – Finish the rest of the story on that. The bad news is they've dropped support for some file system types. Uh, and the good news is they have not dropped their support for Linux. Um, the only Linux file format they support is ext4. Wow. And they have uh, support now. They've dropped uh, support for other file systems from Windows other than I think it's NTFS. And they support a couple of Mac OS file types. Um, and... You know, from from a Linux perspective, yes, there are lots of people who don't use ext4. However, ext4 is probably the most popular file system type used on 
the average Linux system today. There are some older ones, and there are some that are a little less stable. Uh, not to say that they're all less stable, but some of the newer ones are a little less stable, arguably. So um, I, I see the logic in what they've done in support. If they're going to narrow it down and support only one file system type, ext4 is the one to choose because you know many of the... Linux distributions for desktops at least choose ext4 by default. And if you want something different, you have to consciously go and choose that. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it makes sense if they're going to narrow down their their level of support for operating systems that for Linux, they would choose ext4. Anybody that would just install it wouldn't really have to worry because that's the default. Um, right. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah, on the other hand, you know, if you're experimenting around enough that you're not using ext4 or the default file system that comes with your Linux distribution, you're probably sophisticated enough that you have other ways of sharing things and you're not using Dropbox because it is proprietary. It's not open source. And uh, yeah, so I'm not sure it's as big of a problem as some folks have made it out to be. For the average listener of the Going Linux podcast, it's probably not going to be no. uh, a, no, you, a major you have, hardship. You have plenty of other options you can use, like Google Drive or whatever. Yes. So. so our next uh, email comes from Ken, who commented on the Mint review, and he writes, Bill and Larry, I have Mint Cinnamon 18.3 on four machines, desktop and laptop. I too have noticed that Chrome browser is slow to start for the first instance of the day, but all the other software pops up almost instantly. Bill, you said that Ubuntu Mate loads the browser faster. I know that you made sure that the hardware uh, software uh, were doing the same for both distros. I'm thinking that Mint Cinnamon is is doing something software-wise, checking on spooky stuff or something before it gets its load it would be interesting to know why mint has chosen to do this since all the other software loads almost instantly and it does uh i don't worry about the chrome first time of the uh of the day start i am really enjoying mint and have been using it for several years with great reliability i even got one of my computer challenge friends set up with mint from windows he was always having wind problems, but since I got him onto Mint, I barely heard a word out of him. Thanks for the great show and website, Ken KB4XT. Okay, I think that I think all of us that do anything with tech have a few, or at least one, computer challenge friend. <laughs> yes, at least. Um, yeah, and Firefox, I rarely use it. I set up a computer for one of those computer challenge friends <laughs> um, just a day or two ago. And for the first time in a long time, I actually set up uh, Firefox. And I was surprised. Um, well, first of all, I have to say I didn't notice anything sluggish or slow about it, but I was surprised that they have changed the interface so much that it looks like Microsoft Edge now. Oh, you had to say Edge, didn't you? I know, I know. It, uh, yeah, it, it reminded me of Microsoft Edge. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I was looking at it wrong, but it, 
defaulted to open in full screen. It has squarish, uh, you know, window decorations, and it looks different from all of the other windows. And yeah, it's it's got square tabs and ick. Well, <laughs> that's all I can say. That's my technical opinion. Ick. Yeah, I have <laughs> Windows 10 on my work machine, and mm -hmm. we can use any browser. And so. Uh, when they handed it to me, the first thing I do is put Chrome on it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It, it pops up and says, Edge is so much faster than this and this and this. And then it's like, I don't care, put Edge. And then so you have to tell it this default. Then it pops up again and said, Hey, before you, do you still want to switch? Edge is faster and you were built in. And, and I'm like, Yes, change this. I don't want to use Edge. Um, so. When you mentioned Edge, it's like, uh And it, occasionally it will pop up and say, you know, this site would look really great on Edge. I don't care. I don't want Edge. Uh, but let me, while we got talking on Edge, and I'm sorry for the segue, didn't Microsoft get in trouble for uh, with the EU for bundling Internet Explorer, and they had to unbundle it and stuff. Is it? Isn't this the same thing? Yeah, again? yeah. There, there, there was a whole uh, lawsuit on that yeah. that Microsoft lost. But I mean, it, that was decades ago. Bill, that doesn't matter anymore. But they can do the it same now. Thing. <laughs> it is. It is exactly. So uh, I mean, I'm but just, I guess uh, you know, there is no way to un. <laughs> I, well, I'm sure there's a way, but if you go, because I've tried, because I got tired of it popping up and saying, "Would you like to try it?" No, I don't want to try it. You know. Isn't there's no way if you go into add remove software to remove edge, it's integrated in, yes. And I'm like, this, and I was just thinking, this is the same thing that they got in trouble for, oh, okay, a decade ago. I mean, I guess I'm harping on <laughs> something, but it's like you're asking for consistency from, from institutions that have no consistency, Bill. It just give it up, it's not going to happen, <laughs> in other words. Uh, Expectation versus reality. Yes, that's it. Okay. Well, <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's a political thing, I'm sure. And uh, if if things were well, never mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So stay stay away, staying from, away from the political conversation. Um, we'll go on to our next email, which is from Paul who says, hello from Ankara, Turkey. Hello, Larry and Bill. I'm from Germany and have been working in a German institution in Turkey for several years now. I was lucky to move from administration to the IT department two years ago. And since then, I have been trying my hand with Linux on old PCs and laptops instead of throwing them away as I was supposed to. Shh, don't tell um, I learned a lot from the various German and English support forums and after playing around on my many computers and laptops with many distros like Peppermint OS, Linux Lite, Mint, etc. And failing with Arch and Manjaro, <laughs> I stick to Zubuntu for very old laptops and Linux Mint Cinnamon for everything else. I got to love Linux and I'm promoting it heavily to my coworkers. Now, here is the situation I have trouble with. The only time I had a faulty MD5SUM, which for new listeners is the checksum that you can use to make sure that your downloaded file is uh, on, you know, as you've downloaded it to your hard drive is exactly the same as the one that is on the server. 
the only time I had a faulty MD5 sum was when I downloaded Mint from the mirror in Turkey. So I don't use a Turkish mirror anymore for downloading distros anymore, just in case this was not an accident. Two weeks ago, I downloaded and installed Linux Mint Cinnamon 19 on a PC, did the updates from local mirrors in Turkey, did some sudo apt install as usual, preload, ffmpeg, libdvd, css, etcher, etc. Then... I barely used the computer. I just had transmission running to seed different Linux versions. Maybe I did some more updates. Two weeks later, I discovered that sudo apt install did not work anymore. The whole folder at uh, Etsy slash apt was gone. I checked the internet and found only some old posts about situations where someone had accidentally deleted the folder by hand with some cryptic terminal command. I used TimeShift to roll back to the first backup, and Etsy slash apt was there again. I clicked on the actualization icon and received the message that my apt repositories are corrupted and I should change my package sources. I don't know how this is called in English. My Linux is in German. I did that and changed the mirror servers to standard, and everything else worked and updated just fine. Apparently, an update from a local mirror site deleted my Etsy slash apt folder. So, my questions are, how is the integrity of the Linux downloads and updates on the many mirror sites all over the world ensured? Is there any kind of control so I can be sure the main, Tara, and basic, Bionic, packages I am downloading from official mirrors, for example, in China, Turkey, Thailand, and others have not been tampered with on a professional level. How does this worldwide system work in regards to keeping all the files identical with originals at all times? How is it ensured that the distros which I seed from my PC with transmission are not tampered with? Looking forward to hearing the answer in your podcast, and thank you for the entertaining and very useful podcast. Keep up the good work. What do you think, Bill? Have you looked into these uh, repositories and mirrors? Uh, I would like to say yes, but I haven't because I usually set it to the to you know uh, a repository closer to me. Yeah. Um, but it's always in the United States. Now the the thing that I did notice about his email was that you know he's downloading from uh, from Turkey, and I I don't know. If anybody's messing with the um, the images or etc., I I don't see how um, they could. But I mean, I'm sure they, you know, because it, when it comes when it comes to the Mint project, uh, and I guess if they have to do some localization um, for the Turkish language or um, or some adjustments, and I know that's like. In China has some data protection laws that are a lot more strict. Um, you know, Turkey probably does. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, that would be a great question for the Mint project. Yeah, specifically for the Mint project in this case. Yeah. Uh, what I do know about about mirrors and such is that uh, in Linux Mint it gives you. I think it's Mint, uh, gives you the ability to switch the mirrors and it actually has a little um, 
or it used to have a little uh, monitor that actually determines, calculates how close or how quick the closest mirror might be, and you get to choose whichever one is fastest. And I'm not surprised that that might come up with Turkey if you're actually located in Turkey. However, you don't have to pick that. You can pick something else, as as you probably know, Paul. So um, if the if if you're noticing this kind of a, an issue with the mirror in Turkey, um, I would get on the forums and and you know, the Linux Mint forums and mention it there and file a bug if it's appropriate. But uh, my understanding of the way these mirrors work, many of them are maintained by universities or by corporations or organizations uh, for their own use, and they make them publicly available. This is open source, after all. And they typically keep them in sync with the, the main mirror or the main source, um, simply using something like rsync uh, over the network. And in many cases, they're hand curated and things like that. So um, it's possible that the, the website in Turkey that hosts that mirror has been infected with something or someone's hacking it and or perhaps whoever's maintaining it is doing this intentionally all of those are possibilities i'm not saying that many of them are likely so your alternatives are avoid the mirror in turkey for both the download and for the updates and um, provide the linux mint team with some feedback on that to give them an opportunity in open source fashion to have that fixed and the other alternative is not uh, just to avoid that mirror in Turkey and find the next fastest or next most uh, reliable one for you and use that for both the download and the updates. I guess it could be that just uh, that mirror just has some problems, but he says he's from Germany and he's working in Germany, so he could set his uh, um, his uh, mint to. Just go to the, Germany and grab its sources. That probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, if you're having a problem with the mirror, uh, I, I really, I find it hard to believe that this might have been done intentionally. It's either just a oversight, or there's a problem with the mirror, or then again, as Larry said, someone might be messing or playing around or whatever. But if you're having problems with that mirror, the best is. Uh, don't use the mirror. Just like when the guy goes to the doctor and says, hey, this hurts. And he, the doctor says, well, then don't do that. So just just, just go to uh, your uh, German mirror. It might be a little slower. But, you know, with the Internet, uh, you know, start it and go to bed. And, you know, it should be done. The, uh, the other thing, just, uh, just uh, something to uh, – since you're running Mint is to – if you have a, a – Good working system, and you got time shift. Go ahead and do time shift right before you do your um, your system updates, just so you have the latest and greatest. Because you can go in there and and um, tell it to make a quick backup, and it, all it does is will go and see if anything's changed. So you know, just it doesn't hurt to take an extra uh, uh, couple minutes just to make sure that you have everything saved in the time time shift that makes sense Larry. right it does okay it does so hopefully that helps so 
Our next email comes from John, who had a failure to reboot. And he writes, haven't had to ask for help in many months. Now I can't find any answers to this problem. This distro ran for months and months with no problems. Suddenly last week, upon starting in VirtualBox, this was the response. I don't remember if it was Mate or Cinnamon. I'm now running Cinnamon. It doesn't want to function well. Mint forms don't address this error other than fiddling with the xorg. I know nothing about that. If the distro won't open, the terminal is useless. Any help, suggestions, much appreciated. And he sent uh, the error message that he's uh, he's gotten. And uh, I'll just read through because it it's not that long. Uh, maybe one of our uh, listeners uh, might be able to might click and they can offer this the um, John some idea. And he's basically getting a runtime. Uh, it says runtime error opening, and then it lists uh, C users, JB uh, Sun uh, slash uh, VirtualBox, and then I'm not gonna read this because no one. This sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook. So looking through it. Uh, and it, all this is in the show notes, so anybody that's interested and thinking might be able to help John, they can go and look at it. It's just, I don't think anybody would, you know, there's no sense reading all this out. Um, yeah, I, I think the the key elements of the error message are these, that it's a runtime error. He's obviously running on a Windows machine, uh, running Linux in VirtualBox, and it's Mint 18 that he's running. Uh, and it looks like he's got a second hard drive, the F drive, uh, with, uh, I'm not sure what all that's about, but it looks like a second hard drive. And there's a result code saying efail, uh, and then machine wrap component. Uh, and an iMachine interface. So if that makes any sense to anybody, you know, yeah, well, well, all the more power. So uh, I, I I usually use uh, VM Player, but I have played with VirtualBox. And so uh, it says VMs, it's Mint 18 and Mint. And then it goes uh, VirtualBox is reading and it's apparently not finding I, – a file and the F is the drive letter that's assigned, um, I believe, uh, as the default um, hard drive in VirtualBox. But uh, I don't okay. understand Win 5.2 source, and I'm just I'm looking and mm, I I don't know. It says E fail, and then it gives an error code and. It's you know it doesn't. I love error codes that don't tell you what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's typical. Um, well, bottom line here is you know it's VirtualBox. Um, what I do when I'm using VirtualBox is I make the image. I use the the uh, VirtualBox image. That's the uh, the file that ends in .vbox mm -hmm. in John's case. Uh, and I back that up. It's easy enough to back up the file. It's usually pretty big, but it uh, it's something that I copy over to another hard drive so that if it, there is a failure like this, I have a backup and I can just restore it from that backup. Yeah. And 
that might have helped you out here, John. I know that's closing the barn door after the horse is gone, but uh, yeah, that's that's I guess lesson learned is to back up your virtual box yeah. uh, images as well, especially ones that you you're gonna be using uh, a lot. But uh, yeah, I, like I said, none of this really jumps out as saying, "Oh, I you know the problem is maybe one of our." Uh, listeners who does a lot more in virtual box than we do can um help him out but he says i mean he says he's running it but just not running great i'm just wondering you know it says file i found i'm just wondering if that's the uh usually there's the the extras that you have to install to get all the function functionality maybe yeah that's possible yeah, yeah. that may, maybe because it says file not found uh so that might be the like uh what do they call those Larry the extras or something like that? Yeah, it's extras or accessories or some Tools. word like that, but yeah, yeah something yeah. like that. So um maybe that helps, I don't know. I'm sorry I couldn't be more help. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I I don't use VirtualBox uh very much anymore, hardly at all. Uh it's uh program from Oracle. They they purchased VirtualBox from its original company, Sun Microsystems, I think it was. Uh, and uh, Or they purchased the company and inherited VirtualBox. Yeah. I think that's the way it worked. But um, yeah, so it's not too likely that you're going to get open source kind of support from, from Oracle. Um, you've checked the places that I would check, the forums, and if they're talking about, you know, fixes that I'll require you to edit Xorg, uh, that doesn't sound too uh, promising. What that does point to is maybe there's a problem with VirtualBox itself that's causing this. If you really have to, you know, uh, fiddle with Xorg. Uh, I don't know. Um, let's leave it to our minions and see if they know of any reason for this kind of a failure yeah and let's move on okay our next email is from josh who has an idea for the x9575 lexmark printer on the last episode there was a listener having problems printing from a lexmark x9575 printer I have a different Lexmark printer at my office that is working with Linux via the network. I noticed that your printer has network capabilities, so maybe this will work for you too. Once I connected the printer to the network, I used the printer menus to find a network setup page. This printed a page full of information about the way that the printer is networking. I used the IP address of the printer to make my computer speak to the printer. In my distro, I chose Add Printer and typed the IP address into the network printer page. None of the printer preferences are available from my computer, however. I was still able to change my printer settings, though, using the menu on the printer itself. I hope this works for you, too. Best wishes, Josh. So it, it may be using just the standard CUPS interface you get into your browser, you type in the IP address of your printer when it's sitting there on the network and it brings up a configuration page that might um, allow you to connect with CUPS or uh, directly um, as Josh is suggesting. So that might work for you since it's a network printer. Uh, and the, just as a reminder, the 9575 printer from Lexmark is classified 
by the Linux community as a paperweight. In other words, <laughs> there's no driver that works for it. Uh, but this might be an alternative to it as a workaround, as as Josh suggests. So go for it. Let us know how it goes. Yeah, I tell you, printers are a hit and miss. Ugh. Even yeah. even on other operating I, I, systems, they're a pain to get to work sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I I remember that. <laughs> so, Larry, you need to fix that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, our <laughs> next email comes from David, uh, and he writes, uh, "Hi, Larry. Hi, Bill. Remember me? It's been a while since I wrote. However, I remain your." Loyal listeners since the first episode. You guys continue to be great. Just listened to your listener feedback episode number 315, which James asked how to use a Lexmark printer that has no Linux driver. I, too, some years ago had the same situation. I devised a workaround that was adequate for my limited needs, the odd scanning and minor printing of PDF files. Until the ancient printer... I think it was liberated from a university <laughs> dorm trash heap by my son in 2005 or so, and then it finally died. I splurged the $50 or so on a support HP all-in-one. What I did was create a virtual machine where I installed an old Windows XP I had to which I passed PDFs to print and, and retrieve scanned documents. No need to to maintain the XP. In fact, for security reasons, best not to connect to the internet <laughs> and only use it for this purpose. Hope I've been of help. Bestest Dave, your expat Canadian fanboy in Galilee. You know, Larry, that's clever. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's a great use of virtual machine. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 man, David, that is clever. Uh, I, I really, really get a kick out of some of the ideas these guys uh, come up with. I would have never thought to do that. Wow. Well, and of course, if your Windows XP virtual machine isn't connected to the Internet, you're relying on the printer that you have having a driver in the original Windows XP. Uh. So if you actually have to download a driver for XP... It sounds to me like you'd be a bit out of luck there as well. No, so, not really. All you'd have to do, no? you could use your Linux uh, system to download it, put it on a USB, and then when you start your VirtualBox, it uh, yeah. it recognizes USB. You stick it in and load it, load it to the... Um... Oh, sure. If, if the driver exists, I, I was thinking that XP has been out of service for oh, a while. Oh, I see what you're saying. The, the, there, there may not be a, a driver anymore for a printer that may be old, but not as old as XP. Oh, okay. And uh, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, if, if, if there's a driver there, or if you can download it using your Linux machine and install it on Windows, that's that that would work as well. Um, you know, if uh, if you have the money, though, I I just uh, <laughs> go out and buy a supported printer or or. Find one in a, a a dorm trash heap that you can liberate that is supported by Linux, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so there you go. So we can't be much uh, help with that, but I, uh, I will say, uh, David, you get a definite minion star for that, a clever workaround. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I like absolutely. that. Absolutely. And, and thanks for being a, a continued fan right from – Episode one. 
Wow, that's you know that's like what three hundred and fifty-one episodes. Three hundred fifty. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot of listening. So he's been through all the uh, all the the co-hosts. He's he's listened to everyone. Uh, yeah, and, it sounds like. And yep. you know the only the only there's only one person that has um, not changed, <laughs> and that's you. You've been on every episode. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's uh, kind of the way it goes when you <laughs> when it's your podcast. Wow. Anyway, moving along, let's go to George from Tulsa. Yeah, thanks. Uh, George from Tulsa commented on Google Plus uh, regarding that episode three hundred and fifty listener question about backing up iOS on Linux. As Bill said, there are Linux music players that can interface with iPods, perhaps even iPods, iPhones, and iPads as well. Never done it as I am now using Android phone as my player, but I know it is possible in theory. Over in Mac forums, I've also read a lot of comments saying that it only seems to work with older devices. Real backups aren't going to happen from iOS to Linux. Apple wants its user to fill their iCloud storage with stuff, including backups. And George, yeah, I I know that firsthand. Um, the the Apple folks want you to buy more storage, and so they put as much of your system stuff in there, including backups, as possible, so that it fills up quickly, and you have to go out and buy it. Uh, I'm not saying that's their motivation, but I suspect that that's what's going on there. I, I've also heard that the um, the the backup capability is something that was present in the older uh, Apple devices uh, and has been support for that has been removed from the newer ones, which happens uh, with proprietary systems like this. Well, and not only um, that does Apple want to keep everything in their, their, their ecosystem. Uh, you got to understand they control the hardware, they control software. So of course they're going to control how the things are backed up and access. So it's, it's pretty much you're all Apple or you're all, um, you know, or you're not. <laughs> they, 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 sometimes Apple does not play well with others on certain things. Other things they do, but for, for, you know, their iPhones and iPods and iPads, they tend to like to keep the ball in their own court. Yeah, I, I thought, you know, with Apple, everything just worked. <laughs> I guess it, that's why it works if you're using other Apple things, right? <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. So without uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> moving on. Uh, Jim asks about remote connections. Larry, I have had success connecting my computers from within my local network. However, I do not know how to connect them when I have to go through my router. This includes being at a remote location on Wi-Fi or trying to connect to my laptop on my Wi-Fi from one of my local network. Any suggestions or links to visit? I liked Bill's piece on LinksMint. I first used LinksMint 19 on a Furton desktop, uh, which is small, mounted on the back of a monitor. It is 64-bit with only 2 gigabyte of RAM and a small video card. It streams poorly and is a, a little slow comparatively. Other than 
that it is good. Somewhere around number 13 Linux Mint would not load on the Verton. Skipping to the end, I found one distro with the Mate desktop, my favorite, uh, that worked on the Verton. Linux uh, Mate could not make the display function properly, Ubuntu installed properly, but I do not like Unity. The distro that I am using on it, as well my other three computers, is Point Linux based on Debian. I think it is worth for you and Bill to take a look at it as well as anybody else. Thanks for doing the podcast. I have not written in a while because I have not had any problems with Linux that I could not easily handle, which have not been many. Are you still doing the stories about switching to Linux? Yeah, yeah. In fact, we are uh, still doing the Gone Linux stories. Um, just haven't had one in a while, so <laughs> we're uh, interested if you have one in your submitting it to us. Yes, but Point Linux. Hmm. I haven't never heard of Point Linux. Yeah, I've heard of Point Linux, never used it. Uh, I've heard somebody refer to it, so I, I really don't know anything about it. Um as far as the other points that Jim's asking about, making remote connections, um, you can easily make remote connections using the open source software that's available in Linux for doing that kind of thing. Um, but if you're trying to connect to non-Linux systems across a network, uh, that is something that you can do with some of the open source software if the version is available for Windows or Mac or whatever other operating system you're using. Not sure what it would be, like BSD maybe? I don't know. Um, but um, as far as connecting a, a through a network to a computer outside of your network, that's where... You either have to get very sophisticated with the open source solutions or uh, you will want to use a proprietary solution. And the easiest one that I have found to use for doing that kind of thing is TeamViewer. Um, not that there aren't any others out there, but TeamViewer does offer uh, a free version for personal use. And I'm assuming this is for personal use. Uh, and so you can easily use it and it takes care of going through firewalls and going through other things that normally are the hindrance uh, from working outside your local network through your router and all of those other things. So TeamViewer is my usual recommendation. Like I said, there are others out there that, that will work, um, but TeamViewer lets you set up the remote computer that you want to control so that when you connect to it, TeamViewer is running. You just, you, you can set it up so that you can connect remotely without having to um, be on the remote system to enter a password or a code or something like that. And not all of the other solutions do that. Yeah. TeamViewer is a great product. And it is proprietary. It's certainly not open source, but it's one of those things that uh, it works. So from a pragmatic perspective, that's my recommendation. Okay. All right. Our next email is from Preston, who asked for podcasting advice. Bill and Larry, I'm a longtime listener and fan. Thanks for your excellent show. I covet your counsel. Ooh, okay. <laughs> uh, I listened to another podcast, but their audio quality is lacking. The hosts speak via Skype. 
that could be one of the reasons why the quality is lacking. And one host is loud while the other is quiet. I would like to assist the host to produce a higher quality audio. Could you briefly describe your process you use to produce such a quality audio in your debt, Preston? Okay, so let's walk through our process here, Bill. Okay. Um, so we are first not recording using the software that we use to talk to one another. The software that we used to use to talk to one another was Skype. Uh, and it offers in some operating systems, some built-in recording capabilities, or at least it used to. And Linux, there was an add-on utility that you could use to do recordings from Skype. Uh, when Skype took, was taken over by Microsoft, some of their support on Linux deteriorated and the quality of the audio hasn't really changed. They're using the same compression and all the other stuff that they use. So we switched over to Discord. And Discord is one of those programs that lets you talk to one another on a voice call. You can do video calls. You can do other kinds of stuff. Um, I don't know whether you can record if there's any recording function within Discord, but there are plenty of other programs that let you Discord uh, record your session in Discord, like OBS software and that sort of thing. So uh, we don't use any of that. We just use Discord to talk as though we were talking on the phone. And uh, we could easily just pick up the phone and call one another, but we both use Discord and that's step step one is to establish a way of communicating. Then the recording. So like I said, you can record from the same software that you're using to talk to one another, but oftentimes it gets complicated to do that. And sometimes it is difficult to set up. So uh, what we do is Bill records his end on his computer using Audacity, and I record my end on my computer using Audacity. And uh, usually I'm doing the editing. Sometimes Bill does it, but usually I'm doing it. So Bill sends me his file that he's recorded using Dropbox, and he records it in the AUG format. You can choose whatever format is best for you. And then I import it into my Audacity session so that I have his track on uh, his, his recording on one track and my recording on another. And so now we have nicely separated audio. And I use the tools within Audacity to edit the file and to make sure that the levels are identical and to make sure that uh, the voices sound the same and to get rid of background noise and other things. And I just simply, if, if you know, I have a coughing fit in the middle of the recording and it happens to be recorded on my channel, I just edit that out. I, I make that section blank. Uh, and of course, that doesn't show up in Bill's because he's recording his side of the conversation, not mine. So I just have to edit it from one of the two channels and move on. So that's um, that's really it. There are other fancy things you can do in Audacity to make the sound better. But I would recommend uh, that you do it that way. And you can then uh, level get get the uh, levels the same by using, well, let me just say how I do it. Uh, first thing I do is I remove the noise from each channel. And I do that 
to each channel separately because the noise in the background for Bill is different from the noise in the background for me. So I use the noise reduction features in Audacity to do that. Uh, and then I use um, a noise gate that I have downloaded from the Audacity site. It's not included with Audacity, and I find this noise gate is better than the other tools. It's built for Audacity, so you know it's one of the components that you can you can use. So I just use that to essentially zero out everything that is um, below a certain amplitude, below a certain loudness. Uh, and then uh, there's a compressor. Uh, I use a compressor that's built into Audacity to compress the file. And what that does is it, it removes some of the quality, but it evens out within the track, it evens out the volume so that the, if I'm whispering, like I did earlier in this episode, uh, the, the volume of the whisper is still audible. You can still hear it and you can hear it at the same level as you can when I'm speaking loudly. So that's what that does. Uh, and you lose a little bit of quality doing that. So be careful using that. Don't overdo it. Uh, and then there is a, um, limiter. Uh, there's a limiter built into Audacity, and I use that limiter to uh, remove some of the audio artifacts to limit the volume so that it's not over-peaking. Uh, if there is a difference in the levels after doing all the other things I, I use, there's, there's a setting in the limiter that allows you to adjust the volume. Uh, correct it for low volume, that sort of thing. And I use that if necessary. It's not necessary in every recording, but um, it depends on what's going on with the the background and, you know, are the mic levels set properly and that sort of thing. So if somebody forgot to, you know, raise their amplitude, their, raise their volume enough and the, the volume is a little bit low, um, you can adjust it there as well. So it, that sounds very complicated. Uh, I have a video that it's a uh, tutorial uh, that's on our website. I'll include a link in the show notes. I did it um, a few years ago uh, for Nightwise, who had a similar sort of question and asked about our our podcast production methods. Uh, it doesn't include everything that I just described, uh, but it does include the basics, and you might find it useful. So there you go. Yep. That Pretty much it. I think the the um, the one uh, trick that you didn't mention that's very important is well, there's actually two tricks. One is uh, to make it easier to line up the recordings. Is we always uh, give a countdown before we start to re the recording. So we'll count down like three, two, one, and then we'll hit the start record. So the recordings when you drop when you import mine match up with yours that's that's real important yep and also it's real important to we always have we try to give each of us because we're recording your like i said your background's different from mine so we record about 10 seconds of uh just uh, background noise so you're able to take it out and that's why you do it per track because your background noise, you know, your heater or AC comes on might be louder than mine, et cetera, et cetera. So those are two little tips that uh, really help. Okay. And that is screencast number six from 2013. So it is 
a little while ago um, and probably needs an update, quite frankly. But we'll take care of that later. But, uh, you know, the basics are still there. And Preston, hopefully that helps you out. Our next email comes from Michael, who wants to know about installing Linux without Wi-Fi. Hi, Larry and Bill. I'm considering installing the, the latest Ubuntu Mate on my HP laptop, completely replacing Windows 10. I know it might not be fully up to date, but could it be done without a Wi-Fi connection? I ask this because I need to go into a local shop which sells mobile phone equipment to be able to get uh, site assistance to boot uh, from a Ubuntu CD or DVD, which I create and they told me they don't have Wi-Fi in the shop. The alternatives are to try to get uh, RNIB uh, TFL technology for life team to install it or save up and purchase a Linux supported laptop for IntraWare later on this year. All the best was going Linux, Michael. I can answer that one. You can install Ubuntu without uh, Wi Fi. Uh, you just can't get uh, packages, of course, because you're not connected to the internet. Uh, you might not be able to get the latest drivers. So, uh, the caveats are yes, you can get you can get the base system if you can get the image onto a, uh, a DVD, USB drive, uh, thumb drive, whatever. You can install it. You just then hope that the kernel supports all the hardware in the HP laptop. The only thing that uh, might be a little difficult uh, is if you have a piece of hardware that needs a driver like uh, in mine I have to uh, if I want to use the my NVIDIA card because my card comes with uh, my machine comes with a uh, Intel and most Intel's are always supported um, and then um, there's a, uh, a the NVIDIA card so if I want to use the NVIDIA card with you know a lot of times I'll uh, I'll need to do the uh, the proprietary driver. Now, the, there is an open source driver, but it doesn't work that great for what I wanted to do. So just be aware there will be certain things that might work better with uh, updated drivers or, you know, kernels. Um, the, the thing I, I, I kind of have a question about, Larry, is... Uh, is he going to connect it to Wi-Fi after? Because then if the card doesn't work, then you can't really do anything. I mean, as long as you, the Ethernet is supported, you can always plug it in. So I don't know how it connects right, it from home. Exactly. Uh, but, yes, you can install it. A, a long answer to a simple question. Yes, you can install without Wi-Fi, but you might have some issues. Yeah, and most likely with an HP, you're not going to have issues. So yeah, you can install it from the CD or DVD in the shop without Wi-Fi. Uh, and then when you do connect to Wi-Fi next, uh, it will download the updates and it will update including any drivers that you that may not be installed or updated at the time of installation. So you, you're not missing out on anything. It'll all happen the next time you connect to the internet. Um, an alternative, if you, if the shop doesn't have Wi-Fi, but they can give you a connection by way of a cable and your HP has a, um, uh, a port for an internet cable. Many of the new computers don't. Um, 
then you could connect directly to their cabled internet through, uh, uh, you know, the appropriate jack. Um, and failing that, then, yeah, it'll, it'll install. And the next time you boot with the CD out of the drive and you're connected to the internet, you'll get the updates that weren't downloaded at the time of installation. So everything should work okay. Uh, it, you know, with a, with a caveat that if it's an internet driver that you need, that could cause some other problems. But more likely than not, it'll work just fine with an HP computer. Michael wrote back after I responded to him by email saying essentially what we just said. Uh, he said, hi, Larry, thanks for getting back to me so promptly. I've been just reading posts in the Orca mail list, and there appears to be an accessible version of Linux distro called coconut as i have only looked at the basics and heard a czech guy demonstrated on a podcast i'm still not clear as to what all of the differences are with this distro or whether it can only be used from a usb or fully installed as a running system which isn't reset as the guy installed it from one usb to another usb it may or may not be an alternative to Ubuntu Mate, another choice of distro which has been designed with accessibility in mind. Unlike the guy who installed it, I don't have a braille display and maybe the lack of one makes no difference as it does work with Orca. Um, yeah, I'm not sure the existence of a braille display makes much difference to Orca other than you know, when, when you have a braille display, you need to make sure that setup goes okay in Orca. Yeah, I don't know anything about the coconut Linux distribution. So I can't really comment on that. I, I can comment on Ubuntu Mate. It's a great choice for people who have disabilities, especially the blind, because you can install it without sighted help. Um, because during the in the installer, you can uh, use Orca. But uh, bottom line is... Uh, Ubuntu Mate is a great choice for accessibility. They put a lot of effort into it. I can't comment on Coconut. Don't know anything about it. What about, uh, is Sonar still being developed? No, Sonar has kind of uh, dropped off the face of the earth or face of the internet. It's still available in its most recent version, which is a few years old now. So now Jonathan Nato is not uh, supporting or continuing to develop sonar and no one has picked it up so oh, okay. as far as i know unless something's changed in the last couple of weeks okay so our next email comes from paul who wrote about increasing the size of the swap and boot partition while linux mint is installed and he writes hi bill and larry i look forward to each show and have been listening for several years if i install linux mint by selecting linux mint to erase all data and install when Linux Mint automatically installs versus selecting do something else. When I select the partition sizes, etc., will Linux Mint perform the most efficient installation? I realize I can't isolate a home partition if I want to install, reinstall another version of Linux Mint. If I allow Linux Mint to install as home on the same partition as Linux Mint, I searched in forums for a little more info on making room for the boot partition, but couldn't get a resolution. I want to increase the boot partition on the system running Linux Mint. Can I resize the boot partition in Gparted? I wanted to do so recently. I booted into Linux from a flash drive, but found I could not resize the swap partition in order to make room to expand the boot partition. 
I then tried to remove all partitions on the drive, but Gparted said one of the partitions was in use. I don't know what partition would be in use on the SDA1 drive if I booted from a USB drive. Or is it easier just to use DD to clear the drive and start all over? I would appreciate your thoughts on this. Thanks again, Paul in Texas. <sighs> okay, so <laughs> so let me let me see if I got this right. He wants to uh, resize his boot partition and to increase his swap partition. Yeah, so to increase your swap partition, apparently you have to reduce the size or change the size of something else to make room for it if you've got oh, okay. your hard drive completely filled. And so he's having some problems with that. And there is a trick to it, quite frankly. Is there? Yeah, and I've included a link in the show notes to an Ask Ubuntu article that describes what the trick is. And it's in the, you know, there are four answers and the most, uh, the the one chosen by the question asker as the best answer is the one you want to look at. Basically, what it says is you need to create some space after the main extended partition, unallocated space. In other words, space that's not used by any partition. And then you can expand the swap partition into that. So, um, yeah, there's there's a bit of a trick to it, and it's not something that we can really describe on the podcast. So we'll let the uh, the folks at uh, Ask Ubuntu uh, describe it in the answer to this, uh, <laughs> to this question. But it sounds like it'd be just easier to back up what you want to keep and start over. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, part of the reason for this question is right at the beginning, he mentions... Or he asks, if you let um, Linux Mint choose the partitioning scheme, is it going to choose the most efficient scheme? Uh, in other words, the size for the partitions and the swap partition size and that sort of thing. And I'm not going to say that it's going to choose the most efficient for your system, because what it's trying to do is find reasonable, rational sizes that's my description, not not the Linux Mint team. So um, it, they're trying to make it reasonable partition sizes, not the most efficient. If you want the most efficient, then you need to learn how to use GParted and, and do the calculations yourself as to what's going to be the most efficient. But if you want something that installs quickly, easily, you don't have to think about it, and you've got reasonable defaults, that's uh, you, you use the default. Yeah. Um, recommendation uh, i think that's uh pretty much good advice on that one yeah okay anything anything further on that from you bill no um i really can't uh, uh improve upon that answer so i think we should just move on we'll just leave it at that yep okay and our last email is from sean who provided a guild wars tip for you bill all right sean says lt-ftp all that jazz not sure what that means, but we'll move on. I play Guild Wars 2 on Linux daily. The NVIDIA experience does leave a bad taste in your mouth. I am running Lubuntu 18.04 on a Lenovo Y700 laptop with an NVIDIA card. The below link has a wonderful amount of info that really helped me. And there's a link to the Guild Wars forum. 
uh, and the topic is playing Guild Wars 2 on Linux performance optimizations and more. So I don't know if you've had a time, if you had a chance to look through that, Bill, but it looks yeah. from the title of the article like it's what you're looking for. I actually, uh, you sent this to me in an email. And so I immediately read it and then decided to try it. And okay. Um, now, this is just a tiny mini rant. It didn't really help my performance any. Uh, I followed the instructions. It's dead simple. You know, do this. I mean, it walks you right through it. Uh, I my machine has a uh, NVIDIA uh, 1070 in it. And he didn't tell me which one he has in it. Um, and on medium with the latest uh you know nvidia drivers installed on the system i can only get about 40 uh frames a second mm -hmm. and that's when the and in the, the major siege was there's a lot of people and textures it drops even lower if i try to uh jack it up to ultra uh which means everything set to all the 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 prettiest settings and you see all those particle effects uh it drops to like 10 so i was mm -hmm. wondering I mean, when i was telling it that i got it installed um it's playable but it does leave a bad taste in my mouth because the driver uh parody is just so different so I have uh, another hard drive. It does have Windows 10 on it because, you know, I, I have to use it once in a while on my personal machine. And uh, so I went over and uh, and on Ultra with the Windows, I'm getting 80 to 100 frames a second. Mm -hmm. And in the cities, I'm averaging about 60. And that's with everything. Um, so I, I was wondering if this was affecting um, – other games so i have uh x-plane 10 i had bought it on steam so it, it's it has a linux client and a windows client so what i do i download them both for both of them and the performance is just comparable i mean within five frames of each other and they both look good they both run smooth so there's a lot of work. I think that we just can't say it's all Nvidia's fault. I, I, you know, granted, Guild Wars 2 doesn't have a native Linux client. I'm sure it would do much better. But uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, there, there's no reason that they should not be able to produce a decent Linux client or at least optimize it so it runs a little better because uh, yes, 1070 is not the latest and greatest. I think it's what now there's uh, the 1080 and then they, of course Nvidia has got uh, Titans and all that other jazz that you know, make you want to uh, just go out and spend lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I've already looking at the, the latest one. They're getting ready to come out. It's called the Nvidia RDX. It's supposed to be real time ray tracing. <laughs> so it's, it's never mind. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm video card junkie. Um, so it does help a little bit, but not as much as I had hoped. And right now we know there's no reason that you cannot run 
mainline games, uh, Guild Wars, X, uh, X-Plane, you know, Half-Life, uh, you know, uh, you got Portal. I mean, there's all these games that run really, really fast or better on Linux, and then you have these ones that, for some reason, they won't take a the 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 developers won't take a little time to say, hey, you know, we if we add this, it'll help these people. Yes, we're not going to produce a Linux client, but we're going to you know, make it easier for them to run our game and give us money. So I, I just don't understand. I mean, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't, I should not have 50 frames difference in the same video card, same hardware with the same, with the updated driver. Uh, I just mm-hmm. don't know what can be done, but it's a little frustrating. And frankly, my card has enough horsepower to do it. Um, I guess different cards will work work differently. I I'm just a little frustrated on some of this because yes, I I I shouldn't not have to drop into Windows to play a game at it, you know, if I have the hardware to play it at its best. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, it it does. Okay. Yeah. I know it's a little thing for non-gamers, but it does kind of go over to other applications uh, you know, that could use the graphics processors that we have in our um, machines, and just this, we we were talking about this last week, Larry. Not yeah. We we use uh, a lot of people use Linux to repurpose older laptops, but a lot of us don't have old laptops. Our laptops are less than two years old, and we want to be able to use the hardware and the horsepower that we pay for. And on some of these applications, we're just not getting it. And there's really no reason for it. Um, you know, we should be able to uh, get as much power and use out of our machines just because we decide that we don't want to run uh, the W, uh, you know, Windows, or we should still be able to get the benefit of our newer hardware. And the kernel does a great job of trying to get things in. But then again, we were to also talk about this last week that a lot of these uh, hardware vendors, they really are not interested yet in optimizing their hardware for Linux. You know, it's, you know, because we're, we're a smaller market, but I think we're an important market as more and more people are saying, yeah, I really don't like all the privacy problems that they're having. I'll just run, you know, run Linux and, you know, I don't have to worry about my data being, you know, sold or whatever. So it's just, I, I wish they would, uh, these, these hardware and software manufacturers and developers would understand that Linux users are an important subset of the computer market and it cannot be that hard to help us enjoy the benefits of our, our hardware. If they want us to buy their hardware, they should support Linux uh, with, with good drivers and good programming and off my range. Yep. Right. Exactly. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I just get so frustrated by that sometimes. Yep. Yeah, and I can understand it, and uh, it's just one of the frustrations of no. uh, not anyway. using Windows. Sorry, guys, didn't mean to go on my mini ramp. Yeah, 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 and uh, and I know that the uh, uh, the Mac OS folks have same frustration running ga- Windows games and oh yeah, 
uh, on a Mac. You know, they need to use a virtual machine to do that as well. And uh, hey, that's just the way it is. I mean, Mac Mac users have the same problem if the if the game is a Windows only, which there's really no reason for that anymore. But you know, or it it seems like if you're not Windows and Linux and Mac or uh, like the redhead stepchildren. Mac's a little better than us because they've got more users, but that does not mean that people should not uh, that make the software and hardware should just 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 uh, we shouldn't have to jump through 15 hoops just to get some to run their game or application decently. Yep. Okay. I'm done. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I there could, we go. We okay. let's move on. <laughs> Yeah, and in in the interest of moving on, uh, we're approaching an hour and a half on our recording here. We have a gone Linux story from Mario, and it's about Linux Mint, and he's got a rant built in there, but we're going to save that for our next listener feedback episode. Ooh, there's a tease. Okay, Mario's email is a bit long, so we'll just save it. There okay. you go. Okay, um, so... What's up for our next episode, Bill? What uh, what have you got in store for us? More reviews like Ping Eye, or maybe reviews that aren't like Ping Eye, uh, <laughs> or uh, anything in the in the in the works that you're working on that maybe might be ready for our next show? Well, actually, uh, you I haven't finished it yet, but uh, I wanted to do a feature co uh, comparison of uh, Windows 10 versus Linux and uh so you know to show that you're not really missing out on anything if you do use linux you might gain a few things okay you might gain a few things and there may be some issues with games and other things but you know the the mac people also have uh trying to run windows supported yes. software on non windows machines but uh other than that yeah hmm. okay i'm looking forward to that one <laughs> <laughs> oh, Windows the, 10 that, versus was, Linux. Was that was that sarcastic? <laughs> no, I am looking forward to <laughs> okay. it. Okay. Until then, you can go to our website at goinglinks.com for articles and show notes as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. If you like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux podcast, Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73. Theme music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.